Welcome everyone to the Polite Politics Podcast. Jenny Tayer and Dan Rosenfield joining us. Episode 14 of Polite Politics. Can't wait to get into it. Jenny Tayer still in Texas. How are you, Jenny? I'm doing great. Texas is slightly reopening. Um, Still kind of staying at home and you know, going on Zoom meetings and working remotely. Um, it's kind of weird. I feel like everything is centered around this COVID thing and people are sick of it, having the same conversations like, oh, the stuck at home thing. So I feel like there's a sense of people getting a little bit more um, agitated with staying at home. And I think we're seeing that across the country. Um, so we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. But it seems like There's a large um, portion of states that are reopening, just like Texas. Well, we'll definitely get into people feeling a little more antsy, people feeling a little more cooped up. So Dan Rosenfield, somebody who has never had an issue coming up with new uh, kind of lines of conversation. Dan Rosenfield, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, I'm I'm having a little bit of FOMO from when Jenny talks about Texas uh, as a Dallasite myself. Uh, and, uh, no, this week was nice. My roommate and I took a vacation to the living room. So we just, uh, got in our swimsuits and, uh, just turned up the light brightness really high and laid out. Um, so it was, it was really nice and, uh, miserable. Were the, uh, Beach Boys involved? Any kind of musical accompaniment there, Dan? Yeah, listen, what happens in Northwest DC stays in Northwest DC. So, uh, we pay our rent and no one questions us so next question the next question jenny is uh is to you we have seen thankfully a decline in some of these new cases nationally there are some states dc uh, you know is one of the places that has seen some increase in cases as well as some other places but for the most part we have seen a decline in new cases uh for for many different states across the country and we are starting to see some of these reopening orders being lifted some have been extended as we saw in uh, California and some other places, D.C. as well. But we're seeing overall some good trends. How do we go forward from here, making sure that we continue to do kind of the smart but also safe thing when it comes to reopening? Do you feel like people have the will right now to do the slow and steady wins the race to be smart but safe? Or... Do you get the sense that people are just chomping at the bit to really just run out and and continue life as they used to? I think if their state is adopting the phased approach, they're probably um, happy with it. And I think it's somewhat of a light at the end of the tunnel for them. Um, But if your state's not reopening, I think that's where the problem is. And that's where people are getting really antsy, like we're seeing in Michigan. Um, so there is, you know, a balance. You have to look at your data and you have to decide what's best based on that. You know, is it trending down for those couple weeks that the administration is recommending? Um, and if so, then it would be the right thing to do to adopt the, the phase one approach. Um, so we're seeing that here in Texas where I believe in phase two, Things are slowly reopening. You have restaurants at 25% capacity, people wearing masks outside. It's not um, mandated, but you see most people wearing masks unless it's a situation where it seems 
kind of difficult, say you're on a run or something. Um, but people are largely being responsible here. And I don't think there was a run when things started to reopen. There was a run to go out and do things. I think people are slowly coming to terms with the new normal, but they're still apprehensive. I think there is a general fear still. They want their freedoms, but they are fearful. I want to move that over to you then, Dan, because it seems like governors and mayors and other people like that are in a very, very difficult predicament, almost a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation when it comes to reopening. Because if the data says one thing and you're trying to protect your citizens and you're trying to protect your friends, your neighbors, and all of these other people, at the same time, the longer that goes on, the more apprehensive, the more antsy, the more agitated people get, as, as Jenny said. Just how difficult is this balance to walk for governors like a uh, Governor Evers or a Governor Whitmer? This is a political opportunity like none other. I mean, here you have so many events that a governor deals with are very hyper-local. You know, if there's a hurricane in Texas, it's, uh, you know, the Texas governor is only... You know, there's only so many decisions you can make, right? You're you're requesting resources, but you're you're doing real. There's only one really clear option. Here, I mean, it, it's you can just choose whoever you really want to listen to. So, you know, Abbott can listen to a certain doctor or a medical source, and the Michigan governor can look at another source. Um, so this is really we're really seeing how uh, independent these governors can become. Um, and, and how much uh, power they really want to showcase that they have. So I think this is a really interesting case study for future usage of gubernatorial power. To that point, Dan, uh, Governor Evers of Wisconsin was dealt a major blow when he was beaten at the Supreme Court by Republicans who had filed a legal challenge, basically saying that you do not have the right to extend a shutdown order and keep the state in a kind of lockdown. So do you think that, far, far be it obviously from us to, to say whether or not that is right, but what kind of implications does that have? Obviously, there are some states where perhaps the their chief executive has a little more power and others now in Wisconsin where the chief executive has been beaten by the uh, judiciary, which is part of the great part about separation of powers is this ability to check the other branches. I think this is going to lead to a trend where you're going to have more states looking for uh, sources of money and funding uh, in a more preventative sense. Um, and uh, states are not going to be afraid to uh, fight back if they have this carrot of funding or support uh, above them. So I, I think this is going to lead to um, states looking to a, look for more resources within their individual state, as well as see the federal government uh, more as a necessity and more of a, a nice thing to have and more of a, they have resources, but it's not the end that will be all if they don't get the support. So when you're talking about resources, Dan, are you talking about states trying to become maybe more independent or self-sufficient and so that they don't maybe necessarily have to rely on other states or... How would they go about trying to, to acquire those resources without obviously putting themselves under the burden of, of federal money? 
states are going to be more self-sufficient. They're going, they're, they're going to want to be able to function and respond to these sorts of pandemics and disasters uh, independently. Uh, they understand that right now funding is a political issue and certain regulations are a political issue and, and states just want to do what's best for their states. Um, and the governor of South Dakota, you look at what happened you know, when she refused to uh, enact a, a stay-at-home order. Uh, but you know, those regulations are different than what Texas needs or, and what different than, say, uh, Governor Pritzker of Illinois would enact. So everyone's different, everyone's unique. Um, and I think states understand that, that needs to be embraced. Shout out to uh, Illinois, our boy Dan Karish, uh, making a drive back um, to the District of Columbia as we speak. Jenny, it seems that we have... You know, part of the beauty of, of, you know, the United States is that we do have this patchwork where we have states that also operate as a union. In recent administrations, we've seen that the executive has garnered kind of increased power in, in different facets with national security, immigration, different kinds of things like that. But at the state level, we just saw that, you know, uh, Governor Evers of uh, Wisconsin was, was dealt a defeat at the Supreme Court, um, a, I believe a, a court that leans conservative, uh, has more conservative members. But what do you think, Jenny, in terms of the states trying to deal with this? You know, we've, we've talked so much about whether it should be a national top-down approach or the state's approach. Does it seem like the state's approach is generally working because of the data that we're seeing? I think so. I think there's somewhat of a balance that you need. I think maybe the executive branch needs to put some pressure on states um, if they lag in reopening after having um, met the requirements for reopening, at least for adopting the phased approach. So, um, you know, there is a balance, but I think this is the perfect time to actually ask those questions because the constitutionality of all of this is in question by many. You know, when it comes to these sweeping restrictions states are adopting, is it constitutional to say, to threaten arrest for people not wearing masks, right? This is a question um, we're, we're starting to see. Um, is it constitutional to mandate that people stay at home or to threaten to um, you know, cut off electricity or water to businesses that will reopen despite the orders from their local governments. Um, so I think that's a big question in this. And the federalism aspect that you bring up is really important to that. I want to move to kind of going from the idea of the leaders that we've talked about with governors and uh, didn't want to move to, to President Trump because um, President Obama delivered, I believe, a, a virtual kind of commencement speech to um, graduates of historically black colleges and universities and said that there are leaders right now that are not even pretending to lead. And so, Dan Rosenfield, I want to ask you, you know, do you think that the message there, and, and we'll, we'll get more kind of in-depth into his, his criticism of how the Trump administration has kind of handled this, but... Do you feel that there has been a failure of leadership across the country at various levels? I think, my, my personal opinion, I think the state leaders have done a, a very good job and they've been forced to. There's no other option, as you said. But at the 
federal level, do you feel like there has been a failure of leadership in any way? I don't know if there's really been a lack of leadership. This is a pandemic that no one has really known exactly what to do. We have, you know, people are saying, okay, we've known about this for years. Um, and, and, you know, we have probably thousands of people in the federal government that are have been constantly looking at how to respond. But I mean, as you can see in almost every country, there has, I don't know if there's really been a right or wrong answer to any action. You know, sure, ideally, the probably the best option would be everyone should stay home, and I don't know, we'll figure, but that's just also not realistic. People have to go to the store, and people have to get essential services, and we do have essential workers. So from a federal perspective, I don't know if, there, I don't know if there's really been a lack of leadership, per se. I'm inclined to agree there, Dan, in terms of maybe as a lack of leadership. I think there's a difference between a lack of leadership and perhaps poor leadership. And I think there's a difference. I mean, I think the Trump administration has very obviously done some things wrong in terms of, I'll say, some of the things that Trump himself has put out there. I mean, talking about the cases going down to zero or that it wasn't necessarily a threat. Uh, there, there are some instances of Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, uh, talking about uh, that that this that this is is something that that didn't need to be taken as seriously. But then he obviously changed his his tune when when more data came in, which people are entitled to make mistakes. I think the president then kind of continued, and, and it became very very clear that this was not like the flu or other kinds of things like that. So. You know, Jenny, do you do you believe in a similar way that it's not necessarily a, uh, a a absence of leadership, but rather leadership that, as Dan says, we're operating in a time where there's so much that we don't know, and merely that they've made mistakes. Uh, some of those mistakes, obviously, you know, range from little mistakes to big mistakes. But but do you, do you feel that the the charge leveled at them by uh, former President Barack Obama of leaders not even pretending to lead. Do you feel that that was accurate? Uh, no, I don't believe that's accurate. But I think you're right in saying that there's been mistakes made. And, you know, how do we move forward? How do we repair our thinking? Or how do we um, look at models when it comes to uh, what we've used to at least to say, okay, the model is we are looking to flatten the curve. Um, that was the initial um, undertaking. It, it's 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 curious to me because there hasn't been, and this is the theme. There hasn't really been consensus. There hasn't been consensus on an economic standpoint. There hasn't been consensus on the medical standpoint um, because now I think the real um, one of the really big reasons that at least um, the the people in this country are getting um, more antsy to get out of lockdown is because they were promised, and I've seen this um, at least on social media, is that they were promised, okay, we're looking, the goal here is to flatten the curve and to not overwhelm the hospitals. But now it's become, in some people's view, that we're sitting at home awaiting a vaccine, which is not a guaranteed thing. So um, 
you know, I just think, and I, there is evidence to point to that the early models may not have been so accurate. Um, one in particular is the Imperial College model, which there have been some issues with that in that the person who was behind that model, who was actually advising the UK administration, um, had actually stepped down from that position um, when he was part of their effort in curbing the coronavirus in the UK. Um, so, and then you have a lot of doctors, you know, you have doctors that are saying, we need to get people back to work, our hospitals, at least rural hospitals, the Mayo Clinic, um, things like that are seeing declines in revenue, significant declines, having to lay off and furlough their doctors and nurses. Um, and some are saying, you know, the Swedish model was the um, correct model, which was actually uh, limited when it came to the stay-at-home order, mostly just protecting vulnerable populations. Um, so, like I said, not much consensus. Um, a lot of reversing rhetoric, um, looking at different models, and I know it's, it's something that's completely unprecedented. So how do you prepare? Well, that's a question we need to start thinking about as a country. Um, so I, I hope that after this, we can come together and, and really prepare for something like this because it is bound to happen again. It is absolutely bound to happen again. Sweden, I think they're, they had a, a minister that basically said that a lockdown obviously would have prevented deaths in the country. Um, they far outpaced their their Scandinavian neighbors. I want to touch on a few things you said. Uh, the person from Imperial, which is, as you mentioned, in the UK, the reason for him stepping down, Jenny, I mean, you, you, you gave us the tease, but you didn't deliver the payoff. He had to step down because he basically was going to see a woman that he was having an affair with. Uh, she was, uh, I believe she was married and, uh, and he was having an affair with her. And so they, he, he basically, <laughs> during a lockdown, went to have this uh, this rendezvous with uh, this woman. And so obviously resigning uh, very much in, in disgrace, um, having said one thing and then doing another, which is just, you know, the thing that, that people can't stand is hypocrisy, among other things like corruption. It's very American. It's very, very American, uh, of course, in the UK. There is something I wanted to touch on, Jenny, because you said that there's no medical consensus, but, I mean, that seems to be untrue in a large sense. I mean, we talked about staying at home, sheltering in place, social distancing, wearing masks, those things all generally seem to be consensus and they all seem to have saved lives. I mean, that's not, that's not a, that's not even a debate. I mean, this is, you know, the, the reason why the virus hasn't spread as much is because we've not given them as many people to spread to. And by using masks, by staying socially distant, and by washing our hands and doing all of these other things, we are preventing the spread of the disease. And obviously we are seeing the rewards of that. And it looks like, at least in an economic sense, you know, we're not just waiting on a vaccine. I, I think obviously we're hoping for a, a vaccine. And, and there are some reports. There was a, somebody who uh, is at Johns Hopkins. One of the, the kind of the directors there said that it's possible that a vaccine could be ready by the end of the year or could happen rather by the end of the year. But he said he's not banking on it. Everything that I've heard says 12 to 18 months for a vaccine, which obviously 
it's troubling, but but makes sense. I mean, vaccines typically take a long time, years and years to get ready. Right now, it seems like the world is is currently working on one, which is is obviously beneficial and and makes me think that we're going to have one in 2021. However, you know, the phased reopening approach that you talked about, Jenny, shows that we're not just going to sit at home and wait for, you know, a vaccine to, to be developed before we do anything. So as you said, businesses are starting to reopen slowly, but we are doing that slow but safe approach. Dan, I, I did want to ask you a, a, another question about the role of former presidents in this pandemic. We've seen, for the most part, President George W. Bush talked about unity, different things like that. I think he was a, a great person to speak up. Haven't really heard a lot from Jimmy Carter. Uh, President Bill Clinton really haven't uh, heard a lot either. Um, and then you know, Barack Obama, who obviously endorsed his former vice president, Joe Biden, and, and is going to be much more involved in this political cycle. Do you think that the other former presidents should speak up to, again, kind of display maybe a, a unity across party, maybe something with George W. Bush and Barack Obama talking about the need to work together, Republicans, Democrats? What do you think maybe the role of former presidents should be during this time? I think the role of former presidents should be as limited as possible right now. There are already so many different sources of information. Um, and, and just as there's this almost, uh, you've heard it, George Bush, when President Obama was in office, this idea not to comment on the current president as a, as a sign of respect for the office. Um, I think the best thing they can do is try to let it alone. Um, because you know that whenever they put out a statement, every single word that they say is going to be picked apart and analyzed and people are going to interpret one of the things they say is a certain order that someone else may not say. Um, so each one of the presidents, past presidents, has an amazing array of sources, uh, of, of initiatives that they're already working on. Um, and now coronavirus actually adds a, another element of challenge to their initiatives, whether that be you know, Jimmy Carter's Habitat for Humanity. Well, how does Habitat for Humanity adapt to, to COVID-19? I think that's what he should be focusing on. Or um, W. Bush and his focus on veterans and, and PTSD work. Okay, how does coronavirus affect that? not the current national uh, response. That's why we have a president. That's why he has advisors um, and the myriad of influencers and lobbying groups, and medical professionals trying to input their opinion. I certainly agree with you. I think that uh, the, it should be limited. And I think, you know, people should let the person in charge do their job. Um, but at the same time, I, I think a nice message of unity, at least from from across the party, not to comment on the president's performance, but to reach out on their behalf to the American people and say, you know, this is an important time for all of us. We have all had the honor and the privilege of representing you, the American people. We are, you know, in a at least somewhat similar position in terms of sheltering in place, trying to do the right thing. And we will get through this, all of us, together if we work together and we summon that common spirit that each president has had to deal with. Certainly, Obama had to deal with it. President George W. Bush had to deal with it. Clinton, Carter, they've, they've all have summoned unity, or at least tried to, of the American people. And so that would be, I think, a, if, if anything that the presidents are to do together, it should be in a, a unifying fashion. But I think 
President Obama is in a very tough position where he is going to have to critique President Trump in his capacity as really one of the most effective surrogates that uh, Joe Biden, that uh, Vice President Biden had uh, now in his camp, along with uh, Michelle Obama, I think really are two of his, his most important surrogates on the campaign trail now that everybody's at home. You know, they can't go across the country to rallies or talk to voters. Now they're doing it all from, from the comfort of their, of their home. We will move on now to our uplifting stories of the week. And my goodness, do we have some fantastic stories, guys. Our first one comes from San Francisco. More than 400 California college graduates uh, were left overwhelmed with joy and surprise. There were some unidentified benefactors that paid off the debt of more than 400 college graduates. They donated more than $8 million dollars to a San Francisco-based nonprofit organization that helps send low-income, first-generation college students through college and provides them with personal guidance, mentoring, internships, and career guidance. Uh, $8 million to the organization is called Students Rising Above. Really, really incredible that this burden has been lifted. Um, 100% of SRA students are from low to moderate income. 62% are living below the federal poverty line. Uh, so just incredible that now they'll be able to to really kind of help create these lives for themselves. Our next story, Guy Fieri, well-known, obviously, Food Network star, chef, and restaurateur, has raised more than $22 million to help restaurant employees that have been unable to work. He created the Restaurant Employee Relief Fund. Uh, some large donations have poured in from uh, CEOs in the restaurant business, Pepsi, Coke, Uber Eats, and his fund has provided 40,000 workers across the country with $500 grants to help them get them through this, this obviously very, very difficult time and more money on the way. But Guy Fieri, he is the realist. Love that. And a nice story from Albuquerque, New Mexico. A young man named Jose Nunez Romaniz went to a Wells Fargo ATM. He was helping his grandfather buy a pair of socks online, noticed his account balance was low, so he went to make a deposit. Went to make this deposit next to the ATM. He noticed a clear plastic bag on the ground filled with cash. Turns out to be $135,000 worth of $50 and $20 bills. What did he do? He ends up calling the police. The money had accidentally been left behind by a worker tasked with refilling the ATM. It turns out that uh, Jose, his childhood dream has actually been to work in law enforcement himself. And so he's uh, been called a hero in his community. He's received uh, a lots of awards and a scholarship from an electric company. And the police chief has invited Jose to apply for a job as a public service aide for the department. So some really, really great uplifting stories. Again, just showing the different kinds of things that people are doing to help us all come together during this incredibly, incredibly difficult time. So with that, we want to move on to final thoughts on the week that was and the week to come. Jenny Terry, we'll start with you. Well, there's a lot going on, and we're all at home still for the most part, um, just trying to focus on what we have in our control. I think that's a big part of the mental health aspect of this, and so I think what we can all do is just focus on that. Um, the things, you know, I see a lot of people on social media cooking a lot more, exercising a lot more, 
it's really important to go outside. That's huge for your immune system. Um, and also just seeing, looking at the hope um, of some of these states reopening and a path forward um, that we're working towards. Very nice. Dan Rosenfield, your thoughts on the week that was and the week to come. Last week was great. I found an extra pillow in my room, which I'm now using to sit on. And the week ahead, well, today I'm uh, going to finish uh, There Will Be Blood, which I started yesterday. Call me out of the loop, but uh, got through half of it yesterday and, and look forward to finishing it today. As well as going to learn how to juggle this week. That's uh, trying to learn a new skill. Um, and, and I figured what's going to help me advance in my professional life is, uh, in addition to my decent personality, is the ability to juggle three balls. So uh, by this time next week, I will be halfway to a side gig as a clown. I was going to joke that you're a clown already. All right, I think we're done. Juggling, obviously, a very incredible skill. I, I actually know a few people that can help you out with that, Dan Rosenfield. So rest assured, I will make sure that we, uh, we get those, those people connected so that we can help you juggle not just the difficulties of daily life, but also three objects in the air. There are so many different things that I think have vied for our attention this past week. Um, House Democrats passed a $3 trillion bill. It's not going to pass in the Senate, so it's kind of difficult to talk about. It's really it's them laying a marker down on what their priorities are, perhaps the start of a negotiation point. But we also had uh, Senator Richard Burr had to step down from Senate Intel Committee. The FBI uh, put a warrant out and, and got his phone to, uh, to try to discover whether or not insider trading occurred. I mean, the fact that an FBI is serving a warrant on one of the most important and powerful members of the Senate is really something you know very unique. It's not something that we've really seen. And obviously, it'd be very interesting to see Dianne Feinstein uh, uh, you know, also was questioned by the FBI probably expected that the senator from uh, the junior senator from Georgia uh, will probably be talking to the FBI sooner or uh, later. So we saw that there were uh, Michael Flynn is kind of a, a, a case that continues to, to build, I think, just notoriety and press. We've seen the president continue to talk about Obamagate. Obviously, these are things that we don't expect to go away. These are just kind of stories that are now beginning to sprout and bud. And so I, I do look forward to seeing at least where those those stories continue to go. But Jenny, as you said, it's really nice to see some of these states have fewer cases, fewer deaths. Obviously, this does mean that we're moving in a positive direction, but it's important to remember that we don't have this thing beat yet. And in the fall, this thing is probably almost definitely going to come back. And so we have to, I think, just be ready for that. And also, again, be smart, but also be safe. And hopefully we'll be able to to have a, a greater appreciation for those things, maybe dining out in a restaurant or all of those things, even if it's much less capacity than, than we used to, and hopefully have that appreciation for, for what we're now able to get back. Because that sense of normalcy, you know, it, it's gone now. And, and we can approach it, and, and but life will be different once this is all over. And I think that's important for us all to realize. So then kind of going into this week, continuing to see what, what stories kind of creep up, obviously, I think there's going to be more investigation also with the State Department Inspector General that was uh, fired by the president. 
you know, what will happen with that? The House Democrats launched an investigation. I'm sure, as, as with all things, that will probably become very politicized as well. But one of the other things is is a return to sports. We saw UFC have an event, uh, another event uh, this weekend. Uh, I believe that's in uh, North Florida that they had that, I believe in Jacksonville. NASCAR was in Darlington. Uh, and uh, golf. We had a, a golf event that is taking place today. Uh, the NASCAR event will be taking place today at Darlington, and they're going to have a lot of races and uh, in a very short period of time, and we're going to have a charity skins match at Seminole Golf Club, and they're going to raise millions of dollars for uh, coronavirus relief, which is uh, very nice. So I think we're also getting a little bit more of those sports back. We're going to see what happens with the NBA, Major League Baseball as well, as they try to figure out how they're going to go with their season. So, so much, so much going on across the country in so many different ways. Obviously, we will continue to keep our eye on that, and hopefully you will continue to keep your ears listening to Polite Politics. Again, our 14th episode. We enjoy doing this so, so much. Jenny Tayer and Dan Rosenfield, thank you so much for joining. I'm Noah Niederhofer. We will catch you next time.